You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hi, everybody. We're recording. Welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. My guest today is Scott Laurie. I've been describing you all day to everyone who's asking who I'm talking to as the masterful Scott Laurie, and I will continue. My guest today is the masterful Scott Laurie. Thank, Thank you very much. That's a very gracious introduction. Oh, yeah. Thanks for being here. I Before I do any interview, I always ask Megan Gray the morning of, I let her know who I'm talking to, and I ask, what do you want to hear them talk about? And when I said I was interviewing you today, Megan said, ah, oh, everything. <laughs> so we have a wide... We have a wide area of things to be talking okay, about. Set the timer. Let's do it. Let's do it. First thing, I heard a, a, just a charming uh, interview that you did on another podcast where you talked about your first, first exposure to improv uh, and, and realizing that you could uh, play, a, uh, if I'm getting this correctly, oh, I can play an elderly rich woman who's riding a city bus for the first time. <laughs> and you knew that it spoke to you immediately. That's my dream scenario. That's Is that... Uh, that is the funniest scenario. Was that was that really your first, like when you started improvising, that's where your mind took you immediately? Uh, not necessarily, but very quickly I realized that I could play these dream sort of characters because before I had words to necessarily put to that, I understood the idea of a power shift, right? Of mm-hmm. a rich woman being on a bus and trying to relate to everybody on this city bus. Um, but I didn't necessarily know what a power shift was or how important that is in comedy. It's just something you sort of understand as you're watching it and Mm -hmm. then thankfully instructors at the magnet were able to say this is what that is and this is why it's funny um but it was totally a happy accident to come to magnet i was at the colbert report with uh, my friend meg di francesco she said i do a lot of improv if you ever want to come let's go sometime and i thought "Ah, that's not for me i don't really want to sign up to a class it seems overwhelming i think i'll pass so obviously saying no right off the bat uh and she said, well, they have this like drop-in class. Why don't you and I like, we'll go to, I think like TikTok Diner, right? Mm-hmm. So like 34th and 10th. Yeah. Hor- and I, horrible, horrible diner. Horrible diner, but a beautiful start yeah. to this situation. Uh, we ate some eggs, we ate some bacon, and then walked over um, and took the first class. And I believe it was, I f- in my mind, it was Armando. But I think Mark Grenier might have also been there mm-hmm. as well. And... It was so much fun. I think it's like a three-hour class, right? Two or three-hour so class? It, it dep- I think it's something. like, now it's like an hour and a half or so, or two if, it's, if it's long. Yeah. Busy city, I get it. Well, we offer a lot more of them now. Exactly. Back when you did it, it was probably like once a month You could something. like stay overnight. There yeah. was a room service. It was great. We would just put you on a team, basically. If yeah, you if you exactly. stuck around for the whole class, you got on the team. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so I had so much fun, and I thought, okay, I didn't think improv was for me. But I just went into a room in a competitive, stressful city and got to play make-believe like I did when I was a little boy in my room with other grown adults, and it wasn't weird. It was actually really freeing. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, let's do this forever. Uh, I I actually find it kind of amazing that uh, you started improvising that late because to me it seems like you've been doing it for like... 25 years. You, you Even seen, though I look so young. Yes, you look very young. You look, oh, you, you, you look terrific. Adore, it's so charming. You me. look like you've been improvising since you were in <laughs> junior high school or earlier. Uh, yeah, no, I, I started uh, late, relatively late, um, because it, again, you know, my path was uh, one of 
broadcast news. Mm -hmm. I went to school uh, to study journalism. And you know, so I, I come from, and where I think a lot of my comedy comes from is I come from um, a very lovely family, but you know, divorced parents. I lived most of the time with my mom, uh, some financial concerns early on. And so there was a lot of like fear for me in terms of like how everything would turn out, even though she's the most supportive and most fun mom I think I could ever ask for. Um, so I put myself on this very sort of like editor-in-chief of the yearbook, editor-in-chief of the literary magazine, as many extracurriculars as I could do that didn't involve sports. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just kept working, working, working. I worked three jobs, um, two jobs in high school. I worked at China Fun as a waiter and also at Brugger's Bagels on the weekends. Uh, just to be able to afford like my SAT and putting myself, um, you know, like started, I started a Roth IRA at 16 because wow. I was so nervous about how I was going to pay for college and had to use that sophomore year. So there just wasn't time for giggles. Yeah. Um, but now I realize it's not just giggles, right? It's like this important aspect of my life that has freed up so many other areas where I think I had like tension and concern and worry. Well, what, what is that for you? Like what needed, do you find it, it filling? Well, so the first thing that I said to Meg DeFrancesco, who's now a yoga teacher in Maine, uh -huh. uh, when she asked me to go was no. Yeah. And so now I find that much more often I say yes, right? And it's all because of what I've learned through improv. And so not only am I saying yes to situations, but I feel like I'm also much more trusting that a situation is going to work out. Mm -hmm. Because one of the notes that I one of the most sort of resonant notes that I ever received. Um, and I think it was both from like Rick Andrews and from Nick was don't say, listen. And I f felt like it was like a frustrating note at first. Cause I thought like, I don't want to be in charge. I don't want to, you know, take over a scene. And I thought, so why am I saying, listen? And I thought about it. And I realized it's because when there are situations of chaos, which happen all the time in improv, which is what's the most fun, my brain, especially like normative indoctrination, was like, figure out a solution. Mm -hmm. And so I can start to get very sort of like plot oriented because I want these characters to sort of do well and be safe and be okay. Mm -hmm. But I realize it's actually much more fun to sort of trust in everyone around me and let that evolve naturally. And maybe they'll all come together and be just fine. Or maybe it'll be this beautiful, chaotic mess and both will be perfectly okay. Yeah. Yeah. It listens. One of those interesting words that there's like a connotation to it. It feels a little bit like holding on to the, to the side of the, of the skating rink. Because I didn't realize I wasn't, you know, I know that listen very much can sound like shut up mm -hmm. and I wasn't, and I realized that's, I know in my heart, that's not what I was telling the form or the other players with me. But I realized what I was saying is to myself, like, listen, listen, figure this out. You can get through this, right? right? But I was saying it to someone else. I needed to hear myself say it to somebody right. else. Um, so it's been nice to just say, like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. Fingers crossed. Use all of your wits and get through this the best you can. Right. There's an element of biding time with that. It, it, it's, a, it's a placeholder so that you're able to organize your thoughts and, mm -hmm. and have a little bit more of a... Of a backup plan or maybe backup plan isn't the right thing, but more control. Yeah. Just any plan. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, how, how long did it take you before you felt like you hit your stride? Because I, I don't remember you're, you're one of those people who kind of like, I became aware of you one day and you were already sort of like a perfectly 
developed improviser. Like the first time I remember seeing you, you were already just like through the roof, hilarious and amazing at it. So, so like, when did you feel like, when did you feel that you had ownership over what you were doing? Well, I mean, that's uh, very um, humbling and nice to hear. That's not, uh, I don't know that there was ever a day, like, so like when I was young, I remember one of the first times like feeling like I could be funny. And again, it, it had to do with a power shift. Mm-hmm. Um, um, do you remember uh, you went through DARE, right? Drug is a drug abuse resistance education. Right? Oh yeah. So uh, somebody, I was playing the like student and somebody else was playing the drug dealer and he just kept berating me because I wouldn't buy any drugs from him. And he said, what are you ch- chicken? And he stuttered. And at sixth grade, I just turned to him and I said, no, I'm not ch- chicken. And the whole class, because it's sixth grade and it's such a low bar, erupted in laughter. And I thought, okay, so something just happened. And some, for some reason, everyone finds this funny. Mm-hmm. And now I see it's because I was punching up, right? I'm this student who's being berated and abused by a drug dealer. And all I want is to like go play kickball or whatever. And I was able to say, no, I'm actually the one that's in charge. Which, of course, Officer Tubalino was very excited about. But also the class was excited about. But like... I don't remember any of those moments for improv because it feels like it's such a, I don't know, like a slow, like a slow protected education. Like mm-hmm. I, I never felt unsafe in classes and I never felt like, uh, like, oh boy, I don't know about this. You know, it always just felt like, oh, okay, now three of us are doing a little something. Then now four of us are doing a little something. And it just kept feeling totally natural. Yeah. I want to back up uh, to talk about a couple of things that you brought up. First, uh, um, just like that sense of of like tapping into how you played as a kid. I'm always like really curious to find out how other kids were playing. Like, what do you find other similarities to the way that you play now? The kinds of choices that you make that kind of relate back to to stuff that you were doing even when you were very little. I remember. Yes, I remember being very physical mm-hmm. when I was little. So the only thing that I'd ever did that ever came like anything close to improv was because I wouldn't do any sports. I had zero interest. Uh, my parents were desperate to sort of find anything for me. And we went to see Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory at junior theater in San Diego. Okay. And I thought, and, um, when Veruca salt sits on the sort of uh, goose egg detector and she flies down the chute. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I want to do that. That looks like the most fun. So they've signed me up and I was in Rumpelstiltskin, and I was just supposed to be a peasant, I think. And I think my job was to just, like, walk up and close the gate as the peasants were exiting so that the actual stars could say something. And for whatever reason, I decided that my peasant wanted to twirl when he closed the gate um, because, yes, there can be homosexual peasants. And so I just kind of, like, jumped up, twirled, and, like, shut the gate and walked off. And I remember Marjorie, the director, at notes afterwards, says, like, no... That was an interesting choice. Do we maybe want to talk about why that happened? And I thought, yeah, I just thought maybe he might want to twirl. <laughs> and she was like, okay, well, you know, maybe we don't have to do that tomorrow, but that's something we can explore in other ways at other times. Uh-huh. And I remember thinking, but I liked it. Yeah, I liked that there was like a silly peasant who twirled like, um, uh, do you, have you ever seen any French and Saunders? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. so a huge British comedy fan. And one of my favorite scenes is when they're playing the background actors in the opera. Mm-hmm. And so the soprano is in the front and she's having some sort of terrible tragedy in the scene. 
And they're in the back. And I think it's Jennifer Saunders who says to Don French, like, I've decided my baby's going to die today. <laughs> and she reenacts her baby and she's like crying for the baby. And of course, upstaging everything that's happening. And I just remember thinking like, that's so fun, right? Because yeah. you just expect these people to just fill and be background yeah. and have fun. Um, and it's also Don French and Jennifer Saunders. So right, yeah. comedy gods, you can't go wrong. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's funny. And one of the things that... Um, that like I, I think I need a good like reminder about sometimes because I, I veer I, I veer towards pretension sometimes, and I need like a good reminder periodically that that one of the joys of improvising is its refreshing lack of pretension. Mm-hmm. It, that a choice like that to play a background peasant character who twirls when you close the gate is just like totally celebrated in our corner of the world. The more the merrier. Our goal is to just have as much fun as humanly possible with what we're creating and anywhere you're able to milk that works. You know what I mean? Like the, the only real so. metric is if the show is playing and, and, and is a great time for everybody. Right. As long as you are not in any way impeding. Right. Right. Whatever, whatever, what else is happening on right. stage? Because the Jennifer Saunders would be a terrible example if right. There was actually something that you were interrupting. Um, but you know, like something is uh, right. Like a silly walk, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like clearly one of the most uh, beloved sketches because like we're all kind of just background actors, right? Mm-hmm. Like none of us in real life, I'm not like the star of New York, right? I'm New Yorker number 67,342, right? You're pretty high up there too. <laughs> well, That's you know, good. I, I know some people like Grease and Pumps. Yeah. But, um, but like in that sense, like if I could just have a little fun and be a little quirky mm-hmm. in my day and stand out for a second, how fun. And yeah. then you just go back to, you know, buying your beats and uh, the... Um, vegetable not the yeah, headphone sure yeah um, and uh, you know and like just living a normal life and yeah. so why not do that in improv as well right you have um, two kind of characteristics of the way that you play are you make these unbelievable physical choices that just seem to be like off the cuff and 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 make everything that you do so specific it, like you, you will have a tendency to bring the smallest little moment to life in a way that nobody else around you seems to be thinking of so it's a constant surprise i know it's weird to like sit and be complimented but but <clears throat> i think it's like enjoyable to kind of plug into like how a person thinks when they're performing or like where your instincts are coming from or where they're leading you to it's a constant surprise to see you do even the simplest scene because you're finding little tiny things that just are, are like revelations and i can't even put into words what they are it's just the way that you'll move through a scene the way that you'll turn the way that you'll open a door the way that you'll manage to like get off a chair you'll find two jokes in there that are like never in a thousand years would i think of those and the other thing is is what was the name of the cop in your dare program you just said his name officer tubalino so you have what seems to be a perfect photographic memory for all details for details that don't matter yeah okay yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about American history, good luck. Right. But if you want to talk about, you know, my Spanish teacher who only would wear tights, um, Alicia, and she would only wear tights with um, like little diamond encrusted things on them. So it would be like little diamond encrusted cowboy hats or whatever that I would just stare at during Spanish class because I couldn't focus on what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. But it's like those kinds of details that my brain lands on. Yeah. So like those are never going to help me win Jeopardy, but uh, they've been enjoyable in this form. And they certainly come in handy when you're improvising. A lot, yeah. It, it's actually like there's something about improvising that it's like transformative of all the, like the dumb, useless 
crap that you've managed to like soak up and memorize throughout your life. The the stuff that you like naggingly can't get out of your brain that don't really help your survival in the world suddenly are like your best friends when you're on an improv stage. Yeah. And I think, um, so, you know, I would definitely credit a lot of that to my grandparents Mm -hmm. because so my parents both came here when they were like 19, between like 19 and 21, uh, from Wales and from Scotland Mm -hmm. and their parents were both like or all were uh, just like dirt poor in Europe. And so my granny was a school teacher. My grandpa was a minor. Um, and then my uh, Nana worked in like a candy shop. And then my granny's husband, unfortunately died when my dad was very, very young. So they didn't, um, like please like televisions, radios even were such a luxury. And so it was all about sort of this oral history. And so I remember the only way that they could tell me about their lives was to, sort of sit me down and talk to me about it. But they would do it in these fun ways. Like my granny had something, her name is uh, Kitty, and she had something called Kitty's Kitchen. Mm -hmm. And my grandpa would make bacon buddies. Um, And so they were like, you like fry up bacon, put it on white bread, um, and then you put ketchup on it, which is the same as a chip buddy. Um, Again, it's all the worst British food that tastes the best. Uh And uh, they would just like, they would ask me for my order and I'd have to like write it down. And then they, you know, would like ring me up. And while they were doing that, tell me about like, this one who like, you know, um, met some terrible demise or this little student who was always pestering them. And it's, they just landed on all of these details. So that just locked in early on that that's how you tell a story. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what you should listen for in a story. I, I wonder, uh, um, I'm not going to say anything new here, but like, Read stories of like Charlie Chaplin or W.C. Fields being little kids and being entertained by their mothers who would just like sit them down by the stoop and then have like a running commentary on every character walking by and they would start to like do the voices of the people and mm-hmm. start to kind of like fantasize about where they're off to and 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 kind of like inadvertently teaching their kids to be very observant mm-hmm. to and, and to trust their instincts and to to think about the world around them in a very animated way right like put yourself into other people's shoes and and kind of like bring their spirit to life in front of you and i wonder like uh, um how much is lost living in a culture where like oral transmission or spending time like watching other people together isn't really of value anymore where like the second a kid begins fidgeting even even for like a moment you shove candy crush in front of their face and instead of sharpening those skills of like pay close attention remember what you see, you know, start to fill up your brain with those details that will pay off later on. And that give you a better sense of the world around you. It's, it, you're just being, um, entertained. The end, you know what I mean? Like, and again, so, it's like, it's not an original idea, different skill set, right? I'm sure that they, these little ones today are learning an entirely different skill set from what I was maybe exposed to, but yeah. I wouldn't trade what I was able to receive, especially because there is an emotional connection with that, right? Because like understanding through your grandfather's words, what he was like when he was young is something I'll never get back, right? It's something I'll never be able to replace uh, if I hadn't had that conversation with him. And so that's something that sort of, you know, uh, is very, is important to me um, because it's something that I both obviously treasure in one way, but also something I think like, I'm, I'm glad I had that just so that 
that's my approach on life. So like now, like when I'm walking uh, somewhere with my boyfriend, like every so often, if a dog is walking down the street or if like across the street, there's sort of like a crotchety old man, we'll sort of like quickly like give a name, decide together what the name should be, a uh, quick backstory. And then you like just go on with your story. And it's so sort of like interstitially placed in our conversation. I don't even notice that we're drifting off, mm-hmm. but it's like a quick backstory. And then like back to whatever we were deciding for lunch or whatever, mm-hmm. um, which is a fun way to go through life, right? Because like, even though, neither of us is on a stage and either of though no one is neither of us is being watched by anybody we just improvise a little moment and then you leave it and mm-hmm. like how much lighter is your day because of that right how so so you were a very driven person growing up mm-hmm. uh, driven mostly by fear okay i mean you know it's like it was like a little different than like um you know it's like not quite election right like i wasn't uh i was sort of like quietly yeah quietly fearfully driven yeah but it that managed to to put you in a place where you had like a very worked out plan you had your stuff really in order you were like very successful were you happy i was you know pre-improv i think i'm grateful that i feel like i've always again like i bet being raised wealthy is lovely mm-hmm. having to choose which pool you go and dip yourself into is probably a delight but there's something about being raised with like some financial concerns and a little bit of fear of like how things are going to turn out you can't help but kind of enjoy things in the moment Mm. because like who knows where they're going right so there's even if there's like a little underlying worry i feel like i managed to stay happy and realize you know, that it was never lost on me that like my grandfather would like go underground and dig coal for zero money. And then two generations later, my job is to watch television and help come up with jokes for it. Mm -hmm. And that to me always felt crazy that in that amount of time, you know, my mom was a nanny when she first came here. Uh, when I was young, she used to like take me around to homes and like, I would be like in my little, like, um, you know, like car, car seat, whatever. She would be like cleaning the house and like singing to me and telling me little jokes. It's crazy that that's how, you know, how quickly it changed from one to the next. Yeah. Um, another thing that kind of like strikes me is you seem to be really in touch with your own responses to things. Like you seem to be very aware of what you love, what you care about, what's important to you, the details that stand out to you about, about, world around you that that you retain is that like a pretty fair read i think so yeah have you always been that way i think so i mean it's certainly as i've matured i think it's uh i'm much more in tune with what i want and what my responsibility is and how to best take care of people and things around me Mm -hmm. because certainly as you're younger uh there's certainly a little bit of irresponsibility there but yeah i think you know, when, when that's sort of what, like, you know, I have such a small family, um, everybody else is over still in Wales. And so, you know, you learn to sort of like cling to what's around you and to take care of what's around you. I, it's like one of my life goals is to, to be very in touch with, with my responses to things and to be very unapologetic about my perceptions and feelings. And it's a little bit of like, work to arrive there. Like I have to remind myself to be grateful sometimes. I, I think that a lot of times I can get really wrapped up in myself and really wrapped up in, in kind of taking things for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't know what the point of bringing this up is. Uh, well, because like in, in a city like this, right, it's a city of more, yeah. right? And it's a city of, it, don't get me wrong, I still think that New York is one of the best cities and I couldn't have, I only meant to come here for two years mm-hmm. and I've been here now 11 years. So clearly I'm in love with the city, but it is a city of more and it is a city of competition and yeah. it is a city of accumulation. So it's very difficult to focus on small moments mm-hmm. and things that don't necessarily have a monetary value or a social status to them um, in the moment, I think. Yeah. So let's talk about your coming to the city. I want to back up a little bit and, and, and talk about like life pre-comedy, pursuing broadcast journalism and, and making it to NBC. Uh, um, what led you to that? Where were your interests lying that, that pulled you to study that? So I really enjoyed journalism in high school <clears throat> after... Um, after working on the paper for, I think I did it for all four years, um, I then decided that it would be really fun to pursue broadcast journalism because I'd always loved television news. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the Republican National Convention, which I was like interning for NBC at the time, like camped out to meet Tom Brokaw. So like that's sort of uh, how into news I was. And I, I, let's back up for one second. Mm-hmm. What, what was it about the news that stood out to you? You know, I think to a certain extent if we really like unpack and who knows how aware of any of this I was as a child, but there's a certain amount of order to the news, right? Right. Because they're constantly reporting on chaos Mm -hmm. because unless it is something of a certain, uh, of a certain weight, it's usually not making it, especially to a national news broadcast. Mm -hmm. Right. But there's a level of order and calm that says tonight this happened Mm -hmm. and you say, okay, this is a terrible thing to hear, but it feels like we're together going to be okay through this Mm -hmm. and I think there was something about that that I must have responded to in addition to just you know being inquisitive right right? Um, I love getting to not only hear people's stories but like one of my professors I remember said don't tell people stories help them tell their stories Mm -hmm. and that was one of my favorite notes um, to realize that yeah what if you could just help people tell stories like the way that my grandparents told me stories people don't always feel empowered to tell stories or feel like their voice is valid and so it's very nice to say no actually you have a very important story to tell, can you tell it to me? Mm-hmm. Now, certainly with the media, not that's not always the approach or it can't always be the approach um, because sometimes it's a little more sensational and whatnot, but I think that's what I liked about it. Okay, awesome. All right, camping out, meeting Tom Brokaw. Sure. Yeah, uh, um, and then getting immersed in that world. Yep. So what did you end up doing in, in broadcast journalism? So I quickly decided I didn't want to be a reporter or an anchor, but I really enjoyed field producing mm-hmm. and I also enjoyed line producing. And so, uh, right. I think I had like two months left in college and, um, the ABC affiliate in Las Vegas contacted me. Uh, they flew me out, uh, interviewed me and said, we'll give you the position as the morning show producer. And I thought, what an opportunity. And also like at 22 Vegas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I went there and, um, soon realized that I might actually prefer field producing. I did that with NBC and then eventually thought, well, this has been lovely. I had some amazing mentors there, but let me try New York just so I know what it's like realizing I probably won't stay there. Mm -hmm. And then 11 years later, here you are. What are the characteristics of, of a, of a good broadcaster? What are the characteristics of a good anchor or a field reporter? Uh, um, Like you said that you quickly found out you didn't want to do that. What was it that you didn't connect with? What I didn't like about being an anchor is that even though there are many anchors that I love and respect, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of your day is inside an air-conditioned building, Mm -hmm. and I don't enjoy that. What I didn't like about being a reporter is I love that I got to talk to people one-on-one, but, you know, there are silly things like 
fixing your makeup, fixing your hair, making sure that you have ironed your shirt. I hate ironing shorts, shirts and shorts mm-hmm. more than anything. Mm-hmm. And so I thought ah, that feels a little fussy. And then uh, Sarah Hill, who is this uh, insanely uh, talented professor there, said, you know, you could actually be a field producer. And she said, there's no course here designed to be a field producer, but if you wanted to do one, I would set up that curriculum for you. And she did, and I got to do that. And then that's when I realized, oh no, field producing is what I love. That's amazing. And and it, I imagine it gives you the same ability to do all the things that you were talking about that you loved without the exactly. bus and the must, without that you, you just get to, to be a problem solver. You get to speak to people very directly. What are the, what are the hallmarks? Like, what did you learn about field producing that, that really stuck with you or, or what makes a really talented field producer? So I worked with this man, Kendall Tenney, who for a long time was one of the main anchors in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And he was a mentor in so many ways. And, you know, we're not that far off in age. By no means is he old enough to be my dad. But he very much filled a role for me that was like an authoritative male who was able to say, this is what I've done and this is why I'm proud of the way I've done it. And he said, at the end of the day, you should be able to give your phone number to any single person that you've talked to during the day. And after they watch the way that you told their story, even if it's difficult for them to watch, you should be able to pick up that phone and say, I told exactly what you told me, again, unless they lied or whatnot, but keeping those relationships alive. And so that was the most important lesson is at the end of the day, I should be able to look in the mirror and say, I heard a story. I used all of my intelligence to discern exactly what it was that was in front of me and put up as many different aspects of the story as possible and be fully accountable to all of these people. Yeah. I, there's something so encouraging when you hear stuff like that, where, where there are people who, who prize responsibility and ethics. Um, I, I, I kind of feel like we've been so exposed to so much, um, uh, like sensationalistic, shady, shitty behavior that like we're living in an era right now where there's something very sexy about responsibility again. Like there, there's something very attractive about people who you can trust them and, and, and people who, you know, live up to their word and people who, you know, are, are living their lives by a, by a code that they believe in and a, and a code of, of honesty and decency and integrity. I think that we live in this society where we instantly want all information and we instantly want to be able to form an opinion and be able to talk about it mm-hmm. with the next person we see within four minutes. Mm-hmm. And so we demand that the media quickly turn stories. Mm-hmm. Understanding that the faster the media turns stories, the less we have a certainty about what it is that they're reporting, the more room there is for error. But then in the same way, we want to fully criticize any media organization that has gotten a story incorrect in parts. And so, you know, one of the um, arguments that I heard very much during school was everyone hates the National Enquirer, and yet it's still in business. Hmm. And so everyone has a lot of opinions about the media and yet people still for the time being are relying on these media organizations for news now quickly of course that's changing with the internet that's changing with other areas but i just again with full accountability i want to know i want to be accountable both as somebody that was providing the news but also somebody that was digesting the news Mm -hmm. right what are my expectations for media i I, maybe you can't answer this but but because the perception is that something like the National Enquirer is just populated by a bunch of 
of um, skeevy <clears throat> sensationalists who will do anything to break an interesting story and lie through their teeth. Is that true, or are there like are there journalists with integrity who are working at rags, or or is it just like is there like a company ethos that everybody buys into? I mean, I can't speak to that, but you know, during the John Edwards scandal, mm-hmm. the National Enquirer for, certainly felt that they had broken a story, and certainly were reporting on a story that they felt that as journalists they had uncovered. Right, so. I can't speak to what goes on at those organizations. And I'm sure, I hope that, as an optimist, that people enter with the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. But like all of us, right? You know, like we were talking before about like trying to stay more in the moment. Even if we come here off the bus from Iowa with like a cornstalk in our backpack and bright blue eyes, within a few days, I'm sure behaviors start to change, Mm -hmm. right? And maybe some of the ways that we were right? Not to simplify, but like in our small, like Cedar Rapids town, we say, oh, maybe that's not how I'll be here. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that must happen in workplaces as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You, 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 without realizing that you kind of begin to, to grow into the groove that, that you're feeling right there. Yeah. Um, how, how do you process news having seen how it's made? Like, are you very selective about the news that you follow? Are you very skeptical about things that you read? Are you fairly like, what, what is your metric that you use in order to, to, to process all that? I love nothing more than a Gwen Ifill and a Judy Woodruff PBS news hour and a Harris Srinivasan. Yeah. The fewer animations and the fewer sound effects that you need, especially a soundtrack to tell me a story, the more I trust you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it probably helps also that that is, right, it's a news hour. It's not constantly 24 hours on PBS. So, of course, they have time to sort of process these stories and, and uh, follow them up. But So that's something that if I'm watching television, I'm watching in that way. Um, otherwise, of course, I check all sites, right? Like everything from like uh, New York Times to Gawker to Gothamist, right? Because I'm interested in how it is that they're putting out, but there's always, I think, a bit of skepticism about anything healthy skepticism because who knows how quickly the story is being turned. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of, I think that's how I consume. Mm -hmm. And are you like, does your, how far does your curiosity reach? Are you, are you, um, are you just addicted to new information? It. I, you hear the phrase news junkie a lot, and I yeah. don't think that I am. Okay. I think that I'm very interested in what has happened. Um, I don't, so I don't like gossip, mm-hmm. though. Um, I, and regularly, if people start to tell me something, I will ask directly, is this gossip? Mm-hmm. And if they start to sort of fluctuate in what they're saying, I'll just say, like, I, I think I'm actually okay. Mm-hmm. Because nothing good ever comes of it. Right. Right. If it's said about me, if it's said about someone else. So in that same way, I think my curiosity has a point and I say like, I'm satiated. Yeah. I'll be over here eating a churro. Right. Yeah. I can't think of one single example from my entire life when, when gossip worked out real well for somebody. One of my favorite phrases is like of all the things I ever worried about, how many came true. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, if I, did you hear I could spend all day worrying about, did I hear, mm-hmm. or I could just wait to see how it played out mm-hmm. while I watch what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And it always feels like the latter serves me better. Yeah. How did you move from the world of broadcast news to the world of broadcast comedy? Total accident. So when I, um, when I first moved to New York, I didn't have a job. I hadn't lined anything up, but I was talking to CNN and I was hoping to work with American morning because mm-hmm. I love Soledad O'Brien. And so I was waiting and I was interviewing. And in the time I began working at J. Crew at Columbus Circle, I was just folding sweaters and hating it. 
And I thought, oh no, I've made a terrible mistake. I left a home that I bought, I left a car, I left a life, and now I'm folding sweaters in New York. Mm -hmm. And so at the time, I would like come home and I would watch Strangers with Candy on DVD because that's what my roommate had. And I, th I hadn't seen the show prior to that. And I thought this is a very lovely experience. And then I started slowly but surely finding opportunities. And so one of my friends was working with CBS News Productions, uh, Rabia. She had to go back to Las Vegas. She said, can you fill in for me? Absolutely. Something over at the Food Network because the way that CBS News Productions works is they sort of like shop out uh, PAs to all of these productions. I was doing something at the Food Network. It was fine, but I never wanted to be a part of entertainment television mm -hmm. and didn't necessarily love it, but they were very, very nice people. Um, and so while I was there, uh, I saw an ad on Craigslist and it said, looking for someone with strong understanding of politics and world events, comedy show, something, something. And I thought, there's no way that's Daily Show. But I applied and somebody called and it was the Daily Show. And I thought, you have to be kidding me. So I went in and I interviewed two to three times. And on the third time they said, we don't know that you're right for this position, but there is, we have recently started up a show um, called The Colbert Report. Would you be interested in speaking with them? And I just thought they were trying to get rid of me nicely. So I said like, yeah, sure, great. And uh, I was in the middle of a taping at the Food Network and somebody called from The Colbert Report, but I didn't hear what they said. And so when I picked it up, I accidentally hung up on them. Mm -hmm. And then I, I had to excuse myself, I went out to the side and I realized, oh, actually someone's trying to get in touch with me. And I went over and I met um, with um, Rich Dom and Allison Silverman, uh, fell in love with both of them right away. And we talked about the Golden Girls uh, for I think like 25 minutes. And then at the end of that, they said like, okay, great, thanks. And I thought, oh man, I just talked a lot about Sophia Petrillo and I still don't have a pay way to pay my rent. And then they called and offered me the job. And I thought, okay, Still waiting to hear from CNN. Let me give this a go. I went. I fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. Everyone was so nice. We just kind of laughed all day. Sure, certainly there's stresses, but we did a lot of laughing. And then CNN called, and I thought, oh, fuck. This is the job that I've always wanted. I always wanted to work for American Morning. So I thought about it, and I thought, well, look, this is still early on at the rapport. I thought, I don't know how long this will last because I don't know how entertainment television works, but I know it's fun and I know I believe in these people. And I stayed and I was there through the entire run. I think I started three months after it began and then, uh, of course, up until the very end. That had to be an agonizing decision to have your, your life dream <clears throat> dangled it, right in front of you. It was hard. And I think that, thank God, Meg DeFrancesco talked me into some improvising mm. Because I would have just defaulted to my fear. And mm -hmm. I would have said, American Morning is the smarter choice. It's CNN. That's where you should go. Mm -hmm. Turner, I mean, Turner Broadcasting, just go. Mm -hmm. But I thought, but I like it here. And these are the two guys from Strangers with Candy. And every so often, like comedy god, Amy Sedaris shows up and mm -hmm. like gives people cupcakes or talks. And they're like, what is this world? There's no way I can walk away from this. So let me just trust that I can pay my rent a little bit longer with this job and we'll see how it turns out. Mm -hmm. And luckily, um, you know, that faith really paid off. Um, looking back, it's no surprise that that show did so well for so long, but at the time it was a scary decision. I love your choice of the word faith. So you think that, that pre improv Scott may not have made that same decision. Oh, bye. Yeah. No, uh, CNN the next, the next day. Yeah. It, it to go for the safe and intelligent choice rather than the the choice of what's the word for it 
it's not just choosing the pleasure, right? It's not just choosing like what seems more fun or what seems more immediately gratifying or more immediately enjoyable. For me, it was a more enriching life choice. That's it. Yeah. And also, no tea, no shade, but also Soledad O'Brien and Miles O'Brien no longer have a television show, Mm -hmm. right? So just if you look at it from that aspect, that bet paid off. But more so, I've just had a a really fun New York experience. Yeah. Um, Yeah, which, which like coming back to that idea of faith for a second, I think that there is like, there's an element of like practicing the ability to have faith that you learn by being an improviser. The, the ability to have faith in the people around you, the ability to have faith in your own gut instincts, the ability to have faith that this is going to make sense and doesn't require extra effort on your part to, mm-hmm. to, to keep the scaffolding up or, or the whole thing's going to come tumbling down. It's the first time, I think, that you walk out and step on the grenade and something doesn't happen, right? When there's that pause and there's a beat and you see no one from your team is walking out, especially early on in classes, and you think... I have no idea. I barely remember what the suggestion was. I'm just going to walk out and make a noise and hopefully someone will help me make something of that. And the first time that happens and then it doesn't implode in your face and someone comes out and is like, why are you making that noise over in that corner? And you're like, oh, okay, now, okay. So I'm not alone in this mm-hmm. and let's take it from there. And then you say, why are you making that noise? And then the next thing you know, you hopefully have a funny scene and you realize, oh, right. I walked out completely blind, unaware of what I was doing and just hoped that someone would take care of me. And that's like one of the reasons why, you know, the, the Wrath is the first team I was ever on, mm-hmm. ever. And that also, like talk about accidental miracle, is something that I have felt so safe and so protected for so long that now I'll happily walk out onto a stage and do anything because I know how many sort of like, you know, veteran improvisers will completely take care of me even if I know absolutely not what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. When so, what does it mean to you when you feel being taken care of on stage? What what are people actively doing around you that make you feel supported? So, it can be as little as somebody just helping fill out the world. It, the act of somebody walking out with you, right? Especially if you've been out for a second or two by yourself. Regardless of what happens next, somebody took the time to walk out and say, "Look." Whatever's about to happen, it's both of us, right? Uh, we might be going over this cliff together, but we're, we're going, mm-hmm. right? And you won't be alone when that happens. And so that already feels like a support. But when people know to come out and they don't ask me a question necessarily about what I'm doing or you know, a question in a fun way that really sort of helps set me up, um, but when they sort of like inform the scene when they slowly but surely are helping fill out that world so that I can help see it too, then I realize, okay, great. I didn't know we were in a bakery. Now we're in a bakery. That really helps my decision of what I should do next and what object work I can keep myself busy with but also fill out the scene Mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, It's it's never, there's never a moment with the wrath where I don't feel like that will happen. Yeah. A, a pretty much from the beginning, too, of that team. From the very beginning. Boy, did you luck out on your I, first team. I should have played the lotto that day. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a remarkable team and in all iterations, right? Because many people have sort of, uh, some people have, uh, you know, exited over the years for other opportunities or because life presented different uh, options for them. But at no point did it ever not feel like the wrath. Mm-hmm right? It always felt like this cohesive unit. There were just other people there or other people who had left. And it never felt like, 
oh boy, it's season seven of this sitcom. Mm-hmm. Who are they adding now? Mm-hmm. Like we never added a cute blonde boy to help our ratings, right? Right. So I think there's something about that that uh, that I've really appreciated, and it's only years into the wrath that I would hear from other teams, especially at other schools or other maybe other cities, um, where they would say, like, uh, have you guys never had a fight? I'm like, why would you fight with your improv group? Yeah. And they're like, oh, uh, why wouldn't you fight with your improv group? Totally unaware that that was a thing. Yeah. Hey, uh, along with just being a really awesome team, and I'm sure I've mentioned this in the podcast before, you guys also have a great sense of discipline. Mm-hmm. You've been holding the same rehearsal slot for... Monday, 9 to 11. Which is a terrible slot for years. Um, Let me... Can I just push back on that? Yeah. Yes, the worst, but also not. So I hate a Monday, right? I already like, not as much anymore, but way back in the day on a Sunday night would have anxiety about a Monday morning. Sure. There's something so nice about getting through a Monday and then just being ridiculous adults playing Mm make-believe in a room like we all were when we were kids, Mm -hmm. that no matter what happened that Monday, because Mondays are not not a great day, there's something that was really nice about ending them that way. Now I would prefer if it were like, seven to nine. Right. Uh, but yeah, but there's a reward and, and there is something as shitty as that time slot is cause it's late at night. Um, there actually is something that's one of the things that like in retrospect, that's like, a, a, um, that was our time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's something about being in New York city at 11 o'clock at night, goofing yeah. around with your team. That is a very special, you can almost like feel that the sacrifice that you have to make in terms of like, just like your regular daily comfort mm-hmm. pays off in the sense of having forged something really special and private and wonderful with these people. And not only what happens inside the room, but a lot of times we will be walking to similar trains or up until a certain point and then we'll turn off on different blocks. But you know, this part of town is relatively quiet on a Monday night around 11 o'clock. Mm-hmm. So there's something about walking through like a vanilla sky city with people that you really love that you've just been very goofy with. And we're no longer doing bits and we're being very sort of like honest with each other about like, Hey man, what's going up? Oh, can I tell you about something that's going on with my life? And it's this quick check-in that I realized like, God, it's so much more therapeutic than I ever thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Cause not only did we just have a lot of fun, but I can also say like, Hey, here's some shitty thing that I'm super worried about. And mm-hmm. someone will be like, uh, I did that last month. It's totally fine. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I, I really, really love. There is an acceptance that you feel when you're on a good team completely there. And, and I think it, it, I don't know the right words for it because I'm suspicious of like acceptance movements and like positive thinking movements and stuff like that. There's something about it that like rubs me the wrong way. There's something about it that feels to me like, like, well, just underneath the surface of that is a certain amount of denial about like real feelings that are going on under the surface. So, so acceptance is the word that I mean, but also not with like the connotation that it sometimes brings with it. Mm-hmm. There's a feeling when you've been playing with people for a while of just being taken for exactly who you are. Mm-hmm. It's not acceptance from up from this thing of like changing the world through the power of positivity, though mm-hmm. I happen to believe in that, but it's more a thing of, of <laughs> what am I trying to say? Bullshit just falls away. And, and it, it, Oh, Oh, okay. This is what I'm trying to say. It's it, it, it a byproduct of being goofy and stupid with each other and just acting like idiots, a byproduct is that you get to practice intimacy with other people too. Absolutely. And, and I think that the acceptance is not a thing of starting from, we have to be accepting people. 
which suggests that deep down under the surface, I'm really in a state of agitation and denial and angry at myself or whatever. And so I'm trying to transform, improve myself through acceptance. But instead it starts from a thing of, it becomes so easy to be intimate with each other mm-hmm. because we, we confront each other in those moments so frequently that acceptance itself becomes a natural byproduct. You feel, you feel that people want you for exactly who and what you are. Right. If we just played a husband and wife 20 minutes ago, and now you and I are walking down the street, and I know that I'm worried about something, but I don't feel like I want to talk about it, how odd, because I just played your husband or wife, right? right? And so there's something that certainly allows for that. You know, when we went on our first uh, road trip as the Wrath, we went up to, I think it was like to Syracuse, rented this van, everybody piled in, and we all went up. And so, you know, it's like the natural progression of a road trip. Like at first, it's like bits, bits, bits. And so everyone's being very silly and Mountain Dew and whatnot. And then by the end of it, you're like eight hours in or however long it takes to get to Syracuse. And you start talking about things. And then on the way home, it's, I think it's probably like six hours or something. Then it's like six hours of a drive home. And we were talking about things that I never would have imagined that we would talk about as a group. Mm -hmm. And obviously things that I won't share here because it was, they were all intimate deep conversations Mm -hmm. about fears that we had, about uh, failures that we had experienced, about joys that we had had. And it was something so foreign to what we do on stage in some ways, but so similar in others. Right. Yeah. Right. It's almost like you're able, you're given the freedom and permission to practice, to let out some of your craziness on stage. Mm Mm-hmm in an environment in which people are going to be very constructive about your craziness and help bring your craziness to fruition in ways that will delight and amaze even you. Mm -hmm. But the flip side to that is by being free to let out your crazy thoughts and pursue them to their own logical or illogical conclusion on stage, the flip side is you also have a greater ability to let out your more tender side to those very same people. Like the two seem to go hand in hand really well. Right. Like it's in, and I think that it's a thing of, Oh, I feel that I can be totally myself, whatever that means to you. But, but I feel that I don't have to hold back on, on my perceptions, my thoughts, my feelings around these people because they take it as it is. They roll with it as it is. Right. And even if I make a choice that the entire audience hates and could start throwing tomatoes, I know that this group knows me well enough that they would say, no, that's Scott. Right. I mean, barring certain things, of course, which I would not do, but uh, they would say, no, we love him. And the same goes for them, right? Like, especially if I see that there is a moment where somebody is having difficulty, um, not only will I like touch base, I think with them after, but also as much as I can in the moment to say like, yeah, I support this. Mm -hmm. Great. Let's all do this together. Let's Thelma and Louise this, right? Because like we're both in this Cadillac, let's do something. So there's a couple of things about that. The, the idea of Thelma and Louise it together, I think is such an apt, wonderful image for for exactly what's at the heart. Because they're gorgeous women. And, and strong and courageous and, and, and uh, all out there. Perfect metaphor. But also this idea of like, oh, that's Scott, right? I want to talk about like power in improvisation for a second because the Wrath is not only a, a really good team and has been a consistently good team for what, four years, five years? Mm-hmm. Four years. Four yeah. years. Uh, um, not only a really good team, but a really powerful team. It, your comedy hits hard. You guys are all A-plus improvisers but your comedy is really strong too. And I think one of the things that makes for good comedy is, is 
individuals making more powerful choices and individuals making choices that are closer to their heart or, 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 or closer to, to, to their passions. Mm-hmm. And part of that is sometimes you make choices that don't immediately land with an audience because it's not the most obvious comedy choice. It's simply expressing something that is near and dear to you. Mm-hmm. And with a really good team, a really good team recognizes because they know you well enough to know who you are. They recognize that there's more power in speaking to the things that really matter to us mm-hmm. in speaking to details that we really care about than there is in just making up another game on the spot. So one of the notes that Sebastian, who's our current coach, and we've had so many, one of the things that I, th- I really love about the team is the coaches that we've had, right? Um, because Nick Canellis, Sebastian, uh, Rick, Branson, Chet, I mean, all such nice people, mm. which is, I think so, that definitely sets a huge tone in the same way that a teacher sets a tone in a classroom. So one of the notes Sebastian, who's our current coach, um, gives uh, Mike Kroll out is like, I always know exactly when you're giving social commentary how you feel about an issue. And that's one of the things that I love, right? Because nobody wants to come to a theater to hear some sort of, you know, winding political discourse about how we should feel about something. Mm -hmm. But Mike Kroll has this way to perfectly embody sort of like what's wrong with a social situation, either by again, embodying it and being that problem or sort of being someone who's victim to that situation. And it gives words to these situations that I feel in the city on a day-to-day basis. And I think like, thank God, thank you for saying that, right? And thank you for doing it in this way that's funny. So it's not like finger wagging, but it's saying, look, this Mm -hmm. is something that's out there. Let's try to be a little bit better about it. Mm -hmm. Let's not be assholes to each other. And then also let's have a laugh. And so that's something that I love. Like, AYG, I think, is so brilliant at, um, when he was on the team, so brilliant at punching up. Mm -hmm. Because that's something that, especially, you know, at times in my life, I've certainly felt like an underdog, um, even though in other ways uh, I very much don't fit that mold. Um, But certainly there are things about me that put me in a category uh, that I've heard jokes um, about a group. You know, like I, I hear gay jokes and maybe people don't even know that I'm gay, right? Like, especially in like situations where it's a large group and you Mm -hmm. just sort of like quietly sit there and listen to it. There's something like very demoralizing about that, especially when you're young. And so AYG being straight, I remember scenes where he would like punch up talking about the way that gay people had been treated, gays and lesbians. And you think like, there's a moment where you're on the sideline. And in the same way, like as I'm watching, like I might crawl in these situations where you think like, Oh my God, that's great. You know, like these are men that I love who are such a big part of my life. And like, just thanks for being real honest and defensive about something that maybe sometimes I don't even feel comfortable articulating. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that that uh, is really touching as a, you know, like on that team. Both of those guys in particular, too, have an ability, AYG and Mike Kroll, they can be angry about something in a way that will bring the house down. Mm hmm but they're probably real angry about what they're actually reacting to. Right. There's, there's a genuine aspect to what they're doing. And that's what I think is so easy to relate to. Yes. And that's super hard to pull mm-hmm. off too. Be, being able to make anger funny mm-hmm. is very difficult to pull off because when you let your real anger out, sometimes it breaks the safe feeling of, of good spirit and pretend that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you feel like you're being lectured at or moralized to. And, and I do think that comedy is, is a, a, a moral tool in a way. It sounds like a really shitty fucking boring, horrible 
come see my show. That's what Meg D. Francesco told me all this year. She was like, do you want to learn some moral tools? There and you I was go. Like, Fuck yeah. Yeah, it sounds great. I'm, I'm in a station in my life right now where I, I want some moral tools. And bacon at the TikTok? Right. You know it. <laughs> well, I, but, but like there is that thing of not that like comedy is there to teach you to be a better person because I don't think that that is its role. But like, I like Louis C.K.'s thing about like saying that you can't laugh about something is like saying that there are some diseases that are too awful to treat. Mm-hmm. That there, there is, there is a way at, oh, so, so our laughter at certain things shows our strength in the face of those things. And when you see when people, done properly, when done yes. properly. Because yes, because I have seen even certain diseases used as punchlines. Sure. And I know that if I wanted to relax in my daily life and I came to see a comedy show and somebody used HIV as a punchline, right. if that's what I've been thinking about all day long right. and then I got there, you kind of ruin my experience. Right. But if you can embody like HIV is this like real whiny mean disease that is like, uh, you know, like the underdog of it's like family of diseases mm-hmm. and it's just trying to get ahead. Maybe there's some way that then you can make me say, yes, that is a shitty disease and I hate it, but I see what you're doing here. You're trying to help me laugh at the situation. Mm-hmm. If you're just pointing it out as an unfortunate situation, mm-hmm. that doesn't make me laugh. That's the perfect way of putting it. It, 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 because it's not denying your 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 feeling about it, 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 it helping you to laugh at it, mm-hmm. helping you to helping you to 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 confront it somehow mm-hmm. in, in a way that you're able to 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 def, defuse its unapproachability, mm-hmm. right? It, it, it's not like making somebody's thing a punchline. Exactly. But, but it is exercising this feeling of like the unapproachability of those things that I'm most afraid of or those things that are most... Right, because threatened. I think that's one of the tools that I find so helpful about improv is being able to find humor in any situation from this point forward, mm-hmm. right? Like I think it was maybe during the Blackout director series mm-hmm. with uh, Rob and... Des. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, I know. I know this, and you're you're about to mention. trying to explain that he had cancer. Yes, and they were sitting under a bed. Yes, and it's one of the best scenes I've ever seen. I teared up twice. Yeah. while watching it because he has this very you know it's this like even if you not like a de- like very like a vuncular quality of like I trust him he looks fun but also he's sage right and the way that he was heartbreakingly trying to tell her that he had cancer and she couldn't quite wrap her brain around it and was sort of focusing on these very young sophomoric issues was so beautiful and so funny. And you think, great. If I have cancer, I understand what that's like to Mm -hmm. have that conversation. And thank you for doing it in a delicate way, but still letting me laugh at it. Mm -hmm. And let me say like, great. You didn't throw it under the bus, Mm -hmm. but you certainly helped me laugh at it. Mm -hmm. Right. Cancer doesn't become a punchline in that situation Uh, or or, or treated something flippant. Cancer is one of those words. I think we're all so rightly afraid of cancer that it comes up easily in scenes because it it seems like something that we can laugh at immediately. But there's something kind of sugary about using cancer as a punchline. You'll get a laugh and then immediately feel a little bit worse than you did (laughs) before. You know what I mean? Right. That scene was so memorable because I know that it was a funny scene, but I don't remember it as being a funny scene at all. I just remember it like the characters in that scene really searing their way into my brain. I, it was because Rob didn't argue with Des being a child. Yeah. Because he, let, he gave her the space to be a child. Yeah. But also was very insistent that he needed to deliver this news so that she understood it. Yeah. And you think, yes, that's what it's like to talk to a child. 
you know, we have, yes, we can pretend that these like carrot sticks are a little, you know, person walking away, you know, off to like a magical kingdom, but we do have to impart this news. Yeah. What do you, um, what are you thinking about during a show? What are you thinking about during a scene? What are you looking for? What do you hope to happen? I don't mean content wise. I don't mean like, what should you be planning out? But I mean, what is, what are you hoping for a show when you step into it? What are the hallmarks? What are the things that you're going to jump on? The, the things that other people can give you that are going to thrill you and make you excited to get to do this piece or do this scene? Okay, so hands down, my favorite anything is always haunted. Mm-hmm. Anything. And thank God Emily Shapiro is on this team because <laughs> I, she's my comedy idol. So um, anytime we're in like a haunted situation, that's my night. Yeah. That said, um, whenever something that looks like it's perfectly fine on the surface begins to devolve and the facade begins to melt away like sugar with water. Mm -hmm. That's what I love because I believe we could all just be a little bit more honest. Life would be way less stressful, Mm -hmm. but we all have these manicured lawns and these, you know, perfect haircuts and blah, blah, blah. And that's where all of, I think so much anxiety comes from. So I love those shows where it begins to devolve, which is not how I would have felt early on in improv, mm-hmm. right? I would have hated that. I would have thought like, let's get it back to manicured lawn. Let's mow the lawn, blah, blah, blah. So I love that aspect of it. I think my personal favorite to do ever is a rant. Um, and it's because I love nothing more than a Dixie Carter. Mm-hmm. And so all I did was watch designing women as a child and I would come home and I would like put, um, tomato sauce in a bowl and I would put the bowl on a plate and I would arrange chi- uh, chips around the bowl and I would like do like a little cocktail party and watch Designing Women uh-huh. and whenever she got to the justified punching up rant uh, ecstasy mm-hmm. because she always did it in this way that was fighting for the underdog she was also fully letting herself get frazzled while being perfectly graceful in the process right. and being so smart and saying everything that you know an aggressor or, uh, you know, some sort of terrible individual would hate to hear. And I loved it. Yeah. I loved it so much. Um, I love a B. Arthur rant. I love, I love any strong woman ranting. So, all right. So taking it back to the golden girls, then it, it let's talk about the Dorothy Sophia mm-hmm. dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it about each of those characters? So, so like with Sophia, Sophia, it, it, it like, doesn't really ever stand up for what's right, but she cuts through everybody else's pretension and bullshit. Like she doesn't care at all about whose feeling she hurts by, by calling it as she sees it. Right. She's completely dependent upon her daughter. She right. has no other income and yet she's living off her daughter and is terrible to her. Yeah. And there's something very enjoyable about watching that sort of a character Especially when a mother is so different from a daughter, like um, Mona on Facts of Life, how different she was from um, Judith Light's character. Mm -hmm. Because it's so fun to think, oh God, when I'm old, I hope I get to be like that. Mm -hmm. I hope I get to just be irreverent, but still so tied into family is important and a full awareness of like Sicily, right? Mm -hmm. Picture it. Mm -hmm. And so I love that because, you know, like all four of those women are such dynamic characters and so empowered in different ways and so able to speak to different aspects, you know, like hearing from my friends specifically of the female experience, but also like, you know, as a gay male watching TV when I was young, um, while there's been considerable growth, like a lot of times we're just the accessory character. Mm -hmm. And even though like, please, I love a John Inman on Are You Being Served? Mm -hmm. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. Um, There's something about watching 
a powerful woman stand up to this patriarchal society that sort of says, you have to do this, you have to do that, and if you act any other way, it's not okay. Mm-hmm. For so many like young gay kids, I think that's why we loved watching these characters, because you think, thank you for being a voice, right? Not just thank you for being a friend, thank right. you for being a voice. Right. Because I don't know how to say these things, I don't know how to articulate any of that, and you did, and you're a fucking hero. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting hearing you talk about that because I, I, I wonder I wonder how many people grow up to be shitty people simply because they internalize that. They internalize that like patriarchal uh, uh, voice that kind of tells you the right and wrong way to do stuff. And right. along with internalizing, along with conforming themselves to kind of playing by the rules, they also internalize a lot of the anger and frustration that is there in having to kind of compromise their own authentic mm-hmm. perceptions and voice and whatnot. And over time, that irritation is just kind of taken out on everybody around them. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I haven't really thought of it like that before, but it's interesting. I there there's a, a Dorothy Zbornak moment that always stands out to me where she has some kind of like fatigue illness. She's feeling very fatigued. And um, nobody she, believes her. Nobody believes her. And she has that great monologue. She goes to the one doctor who basically says that we don't really know what it is, but but you know we know that there's like something going on. Mm-hmm. And she takes that back to the first doctor that completely like marginalized what she had to say. And she has a great lecture. It's one of my favorite uh, um, sitcom lecture freakouts. Right. That's all about uh, uh, you know you made me feel. Like I'm a crazy person. You made me feel like I don't know how I feel, and and I want you to know. And it's just like, and then Sophia gets that last jab in. Oh, go and YouTube this clip, everybody. It's such like a, a an empowering, yeah, standing up to the authority, standing up to the know it all who brushes you off and doesn't have time to take you seriously, doesn't have time to listen to what you what you what you're saying to them. Because let's say, and the way that much like art, the way that everyone can project different experiences on that. Let's say if I'm an older individual in the eighties watching that and I say like, actually that's legitimately what happened with my doctor. Thank you for voicing that. Great. Let's say if I'm a young gay kid and everyone tells me, this is how you be a man. This is how you play sports. This is who you should love. Va, va, boom, whatever. And I think like, I don't feel that way about any of these female stars to be able to project and say like, yeah, you made me feel crazy because I was being myself and because I noticed what was going on with myself because I'm me, I'm in this skin. Mm-hmm. I know what's happening over mm-hmm. here better than you do. And so I'm able to project that in that moment and say, thank you, Paul Jungerwit, mm-hmm. and all of the phenomenal um, people associated with that show. You put together you know, an empowered speech that helps me. Yeah. Um, and even like real fast, please also YouTube um, Dixie Carter. That's the night that the lights went out in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Not the song, but when she's talking about Suzanne Sugarbaker, because she's constantly belittling Suzanne because Suzanne sort of is trying so hard to fit into this feminine ideal. And she's always worried about her weight and her hair and whatnot, pageant queen. And so while Dixie Carter in no way appreciates that because she's an independent businesswoman, she's taking care of running a business in the deep South and not taking shit from anybody she overhears another contestant talk about how fat and dumpy her sister is. And so she sort of waits for everyone to leave the room. And the speech she gives to this contestant about how important her sister is, is such, it's such a beautiful way of like how to so strongly take care of someone, regardless of whether or not you have little, you know, little quarrels with them in other ways. She's completely protective. And that's why 
when, whenever those sort of moments happen on the wrath, I love it because we think, let's say if you're sitting in the audience, right? And let's say if you are experiencing any one of the social situations that we're sort of calling attention to, maybe you don't feel like you can say anything to your boss. Maybe you don't feel like you can say anything to your boyfriend or what have you. And if you see someone yell it on a stage, then maybe you think, okay, if they could yell it on a stage, maybe I can say it in person, mm-hmm. right? If I can do 10% more than I felt comfortable doing, maybe I can advocate for myself because I matter and this is important. And so it's those moments where like, it's not lecturing, right? But we are saying like, you are fucking important. You are great. Take care of yourself mm-hmm. because this, this crazy character is going to yell out a whole bunch of lines maybe you can use tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. What I'm getting out of this conversation, Scott, is we seem to be circling a lot around this idea of order as a suffocating, demoralizing, fearful, fear-based conformist force versus order as as a responsible, decent, dignified, grown-up, trustworthy thing. That seems to be what everything is hinging on is it, 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 it... that fine line between being obsessive. Right. Moving it on the spectrum. Right. Moving it away from one polarity a little bit more to the middle. Right. Which, which like, to bring it back to improv for a second, like, that is something I think about all the time, that just, like, the nature of long form and the nature of, of how precise you have to be moment by moment to play along with everybody, how precise you have to be in the big picture to see how the different bits and pieces come together to create a whole that's going to be cohesive and entertaining and interesting to watch. But your goal is to create a sense of anarchy, mm-hmm. a sense of inspired madness on stage. Mm-hmm. And it is this dynamic equilibrium between very orderly, responsible behavior towards each other, but also a total sense of empowerment to let your own weird fly out there. Justin started a scene last night with a grill on fire. Yeah. And my response after, you know, years of doing improv was to let somebody else take care of it was, even though it's our grill, it'll figure itself out. Mm -hmm. And that's the opposite of what Scott Laurie pre TikTok diner years ago would have done. Mm -hmm. I would have become obsessed with calling the police with doing what we could with trying to figure out something. Now I was like, let's, you know, what's fun, a burning grill, kick it into a pool and see where it goes from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was such a fun scene to do. And it, and it, and I love that he chose to start with such high stakes. You know, again, that's something that I really love about the wrath is that we can start very simply just two people trying to decide between bottles of Snapple in a store and then let it unfold to whatever ridiculous outcome it'll have. Or we can start with like an overturned car and let's, this is our starting point. Here we go. So I, I get hung up sometimes on this, and, and and I'm realizing recently that one of my one of my fears is starting with something that's so high stakes that I don't know how to confront the problem, and that'll put me in my head. So so what was your response when the grill is on fire? When you bypass early Scott thinking with like, okay, let's let's solve this. Let's call somebody. Like, what were the first words that came out of your mouth when you were confronted with, with a burning grill? I, I think right away, I just told Justin that we, we didn't need to deal with it, that it would eventually, all problems eventually have a way of figuring themselves out. Uh-huh. It's like me, like I haven't paid my taxes for three years 
And then he brought up that the IRS was knocking and I said, yeah, I don't answer the door. And then it slowly but surely you realize that this is just a person who won't confront anything from his life, but he seems to be totally content. He kept talking about how he was totally in love with his wife, how they giggled over popsicles, how they seemed to have a very lovely marriage because they were letting all of this stress just go, Mm -hmm. all the kind of stresses that consume a relationship. And that's fun. Mm -hmm. And what's kind of great about that is like now as somebody in a relationship, I realize, granted, we will never, hopefully, not have any grills on fire. But like when a grill is on fire, let's just figure it out. Right. Right. Let's, nobody has to yell out, listen, and solve it right away. It's two of us here. We can figure it out together. It's way yeah. better than if it was just me figuring it out by myself. Let's uh, uh, veer the conversation into a, a sadder note, if we can. Uh, so after 11 years in the city, you are going to be picking up and moving on pretty soon. Yeah. Must have been a tough decision. It really was. I am very much in love and I have been uh, seeing my boyfriend now for quite some time. And so we talked about it a lot. Our moms love each other and uh, celebrated together in Mom Springs weekend. Uh, They were best friends. So we thought, okay, let's look at his job and let's look at my job and who can move where. And he was much more sort of anchored to his city. And I happen to love San Francisco when I was born in San Diego. like the son of European immigrants, like California is like gold mm-hmm. to our kind, right? Because mm-hmm. we spend all the time in the rain and snow and slush. And so um, I thought about it a lot. I talked to a lot of people and I slowly but surely decided. Um, but the day that I told the wrath, I um, was scared. And I wasn't scared of how they would respond because I knew that they would all be very gracious and I knew that they would extend themselves in ways that, you know, is far beyond what you would hope for. But I was scared that like there was a finality to it when I told them um, because part of me does not want to leave Mondays 9 to 11 and now Thursdays at 9 because it's such a, it's such a bright point, two bright points in a week. And everyone was so understanding and so kind. Um, and it's really going to be something that I'm really going to miss because it's no longer about giggling, right? It's no longer about like trying to have fun on a stage and like twirl around while you close a gate. It's about like learning how to connect with people and learning how to feel totally fine and supported in a pretty crazy world. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll miss that a lot. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you did New York. Well, it's been really, it's been really, really fun. Yeah. You're going to be greatly missed. I can, I can tell you that I believe I can speak comfortably on behalf of the whole magnet community when I say it's good for you, but bad for us. Thank you. But you know, it's, uh, it's a loss. Uh, I very much will feel, um, when I'm over there. Um, yeah. cause it's great. And it's great to just, you know, like there's like a conviviality that even if you are like walking by, sometimes I'll just like walk by the magnet theater like on the other side of the street or like, you know, like walking down ninth Avenue and you just see people outside warming up and being ridiculous and being fun. And even if I don't say hi to anybody, or even if I'm just listening to this podcast, um, you know, on a headset while I'm traveling somewhere, you feel this connection that just feels like instant support because you know any of those people would, Mm -hmm. right? You know, you can walk into that theater and say like, oh, I'm having a shitty day. And at the end of the time that you leave, it'll feel somewhat different, right? right? It might not be like sunshine and roses and rainbows, but it'll feel different than when you walked in. And that's uh, such a gift. 
Scott Laurie, this has been just a delightful conversation. Thank you for talking. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. This has been the Magna Theater Podcast. A few other thank yous. First off, thank you to our very special guest engineer for the day, Peter Gatz. Thank you to our, our producer, Evan Ford Barden, our executive producer, Ed Herpsman, and all of you wonderful folks out there listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do give us a positive shout out on iTunes. We sure do appreciate it. Our guest today, once again, has been Scott Laurie. Thanks again, Scott. Thank you. Bye, friends. Bye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.